0: to Murderous America. Hey guys, welcome to Murderous America, in case you forgot, I'm Maya Tate.
1: And I'm Oscar Showa. And by popular demand today, I will actually have more than just one-liners for you guys. So, Maya, what do you have for us today?
0: (laughs) Okay, Oscar, so for this week's episode, we are heading over to California for a case that's slightly more recent than last week's case.
1: How recent are we talking?
0: Like the 80s. Oh. Well.
1: (laughs) That's not recent,
0: but all right. Anyways, so this is the story of Dorothea Puente and her boarding house on 1426 F Street, Sacramento, California. But before we get into that, the house and everything, let's start at the beginning. Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9th, 1929, the sixth of seven children to Jesse and Trudy Gray in Redlands, California. Um, So her parents were not very good, to say the least. They were both extreme alcoholics and would abuse their children. And on top of that, Jesse would go through fits of rage and threaten to kill himself in front of his kids.
1: Is Jesse the dad? Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: But he ultimately died in 1937 of tuberculosis, so when Dorothea was around the age of eight. Now, her mom, Trudy, was seen as an unfit mother due to her alcoholism and the fact that she was a sex worker.
1: That checks off.
0: So she lost custody of her kids in 1938 and then was killed in a motorcycle accident later that same year. Killed? So before the age of 10, Dorothea had lost both of her parents, and until she was about 18, she moved around a lot from orphanages and relatives' homes, and there are multiple reports that she was abused physically, emotionally, and sexually in this period of time.
1: So it just didn't stop after her parents died? Yeah. In
0: 1945, Dorothea married a World War II soldier named Fred McFall. They had two children together in 1946 and 1948, but Dorothea wasn't really motherly, and she didn't really want to be. So they sent their first child to live with relatives and put the second one up for adoption.
1: Yeah, she didn't have a good mother role model already, so...
0: Yeah. And then in 1948, that was also the year that McFall left Dorothea, ending her first marriage after roughly three years. Oof. It was also in 1948 that Dorothea was arrested for the first time.
1: First of many, I assume.
0: Yes. So the main reason she was arrested was... She was arrested in Riverside, California, after forging multiple checks in order to buy women's accessories. I also saw a couple things saying that she had been arrested for um, being a sex worker, but I didn't get too much information on that, so I don't exactly know how true that is. But she pled guilty to two counts of forgery and served four months in jail, and that was supposed to be followed by three years of probation. But about six months after getting out of jail, Dorothea left Riverside.
1: Fraud only gets you four months back in the day? <clears throat> wow.
0: Now, we're going to skip forward to 1952 in San Francisco, when Dorothea married her second husband, Axel Johansson. But he didn't think he married Dorothea. How so? At this time, Dorothea was pretending to be a Muslim woman na- from Egypt with Israeli descent and was calling herself Taya Nayarda.
1: The catfish is crazy.
0: Their marriage was pretty rocky, and they eventually moved from San Francisco to Sacramento. Um, Johansen was a merchant seaman, so he often was on trips overseas, and during those trips, Dorothea would gamble his money away and invite different men over to their home. In 1960, she was arrested for the second time for owning and operating a brothel fronted as a bookkeeping firm. And she was found guilty and sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail.
1: These are slaps on the wrist nowadays. Then, in
0: 1961, after a drinking binge and suicide attempts, Johansson had committed her to the DeWitt State Hospital psychiatric ward. For those two things, and for lying and criminal behavior. During that visit at the hospital, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar and warned of her unstable personality. Johansson divorced Dorothea in 1966, so about five years later, but she claims that things were amicable and they stayed in touch. After the divorce, Dorothea changed her name to Sharon Johansson and began to establish a solid reputation in the area, specifically as a caregiver. This, The caregiver she was at this time was she would take care of young mothers and children or runaway teen girls for free. So the community really saw her as... A changed
1: person. Yeah. they, they trying to turn it around.
0: But she also had a different name, so they didn't know. Mm. So yeah. Then in 1968, Dorothea married for the third time to Roberto Puente. Now, this relationship only lasted 16 months before Dorothea filed for divorce, citing domestic abuse. Although the divorce was not finalized until 1973, due to Puente fleeing to Mexico to avoid divorce settlements. Dorothea also filed for a restraining order against him in 1975. But what's interesting is, this is when Dorothea keeps the Puente surname that everyone knows her by, Mm -hmm. and kept the Dorothea part. Mm -hmm. After this marriage, Dorothea moves into her boarding house at 1426 F Street and starts to get really involved in her community. She begins to run her boarding home and specifically focuses on helping homeless alcoholics and people with mental health issues.
1: She's turning it around. Let's go.
0: She held Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and helped her boarders sign up for Social Security benefits. Let's go. She also decided to really lean into her newfound last name and she became a respected member of the Sacramento Hispanic community and helped fund charities and scholarships. Now that she was sticking to the Puente name, she decided that something still had to change about her. And she began wearing vintage clothes, those big grandma-style glasses like the square, big Mm -hmm. ones that take up your whole face, and she started to let her hair turn gray. Really trying to keep up with her gentle Old landlady persona. Okay. In 1976, she was married for the fourth and final time to a man named Pedro Montalvo, but the marriage didn't last long. Sources differ, but some say Montalvo left after a week.
1: A week?
0: And some say it was at least a few months. But either way, it was a very short lived marriage. On December 21st, 1978, Dorothea was convicted of illegally cashing. 34 state and federal checks that had belonged to her tenants. She was given five years of probation and was ordered to pay $4,000 in restitution.
1: Only 4000 is crazy.
0: By I me, mean, it was a different time.
1: I, I guess, but still.
0: So, in case you haven't figured it out yet, she wasn't the greatest person, and she was pretty much always in trouble with the law in one way or another.
1: But she was trying to turn it around a little. Very yeah. little, very little, but she was trying.
0: On January 16th, 1982, Dorothea met 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie at a bar and helped him get home to his apartment. Once there, Dorothea came in and made herself comfortable. Hmm. After a little while in the apartment, McKenzie started to feel a little strange before feeling completely debilitated. He then witnessed Dorothea start to rob him. She took coins, different watches and jewelry from his home, and even took his mother's diamond ring off of his pinky while he couldn't move. Mackenzie believes that she must have slipped something into his drink. And that wasn't the only time Dorothea robbed someone blindly while they were in their own home. On May 16, 1982, Dorothy Osborne, a friend of Dorothea's, reported that several of her credit cards, checks, and other items were missing from her home after Dorothea came to visit and had made Dorothea drink. Going back in time a little bit, about a year or so before these robberies, Dorothea met a woman named Ruth Monroe. They became fast friends, and Monroe decided that she would help Dorothea in a business venture. So the two opened up a bar that was almost completely paid for by Monroe, and really only worked on by Monroe.
1: So she had money like that.
0: And not long after, Monroe's husband died from cancer, leaving her very distraught, So Dorothea offered to have her come live in her boarding house. And not even three weeks later, she was dead.
1: Suspicious. I saw my mom every day from the time I moved her in there. I stopped by there on my way home from work. And the last three days of her life, um, she seemed like she was getting sick. And when I went there, I had noticed that she had a drink in her hand and my mom didn't drink. So I asked her, I said, what's that? And she said, it was a drink that Dorothea fixed to, to calm her nerves. I said, fine. And I didn't think anything of it because I knew they were friends and okay, fine.
0: That was an interview with Bill Clawson, Ruth Monroe's son for an episode of World's Most Evil Killers, Clausen, kept visiting his mother for days following that first circumstance and seeing her with a drink and eventually she turned catatonic but he told her it would be okay because Dorothea was looking after her Mm -hmm. the next day he got a call saying that his mother had died when he shows up to Dorothea's his mother had already been taken away to the coroner he didn't he didn't get to see anything and then Dorothea told him that his mom had committed suicide which he says really seemed out of character. She was happy. She had her kids and her grandkids. And, yeah, she was upset about her husband dying, but she wouldn't have killed herself.
1: Mm -hmm. How'd she die?
0: It was a codeine and acetaminophen overdose. Jesus. Monroe was considered Dorothea's first victim. In July of 1982, Dorothea was arrested and convicted on three grand theft charges, She was sentenced to five years in prison and parole until 1990. Part of her parole said that she was not supposed to run a boarding house anymore. During her incarceration, Dorothea began corresponding with Everson Gilmuth, a 77-year-old from Oregon. They hit it off, and Gilmuth decided that he was going to go to Sacramento to be with her once she got out of prison. Uh In early September 1985, Gilmuth packed up his things and drove his truck and his trailer to Dorothea's boarding house.
1: What love can do.
0: Dorothea was released from prison after serving approximately half of her five-year sentence, and she was picked up by Gilmoth. In October, Gilmoth's sister received a letter from Dorothea telling her that the two of them were going to get married on November 2nd. Not long after that letter was sent, Dorothea hired a handyman for some remodeling jobs, but also asked him to build a six-foot-by-30-inch storage box.
1: Suss.
0: And, Oscar, do you want to know how she paid him? How? She paid him $800 and gave him Gilmoth's truck as payment.
1: Yeah, she's going to kill him.
0: The day after the handyman had dropped off the box, he came back and found it nailed shut and was asked by Dorothea to take her to drop it off at a storage location. After driving for about an hour, she had him stop at a river where they then left the box. The handyman also notes that when he picked up the box for the second time, it weighed at least 300 pounds.
1: And you didn't find that one bit suspicious.
0: Her next victim is 78-year-old Betty Mae Palmer. She arrived at Dorothea's boarding house in the fall of 1986, and by October 14th, Dorothea had obtained a California ID in Palmer's name, but with Dorothea's picture. Hmm. By December, Palmer's Social Security checks were being addressed to the boarding house, and Dorothea stole about $7,000 worth of Palmer's benefit checks. Then, on October 21st, 1986, a notary arrived at the hospital room of 78-year-old Leona Carpenter, one of Dorothea's tenants. During the visit, Dorothea was given the power of attorney over Carpenter and just 10 days later began cashing her Social Security checks.
1: She just loves her some fraud.
0: Carpenter had been in the hospital following a florazepam overdose and was discharged back to the boarding house in December. Carpenter was readministered into the hospital just a couple of weeks later and was finally discharged in February 1987 and disappeared shortly after.
1: Disappeared, in quotations.
0: Also, in February 1987, 62-year-old James Gallup moved into the boarding house, and on July 20th, a tumor was found on his colon. A tumor? He had planned to go to follow-up appointments at his doctor, but his doctor's office was later notified by Dorothea that Gallup had decided to go to Los Angeles for the foreseeable future. That same month, 58-year-old Eugene Gammel was discovered dead in the boarding house after an apparent suicide, overdosing on amitriptyline and ethanol. Dorothea corroborated the story discussing how he had a history of suicide. Now we get to October 1987, which is a pretty full month. On October 2nd, a woman named Vera Faye Martin, who was 61, was sent by her social worker to live at Dorothea's boarding house. Only three days later, on October 5th, Dorothea began forging several of Martin's social security checks, totaling roughly $7,000. Martin's daughter started to become suspicious after her mother had not called her on her birthday, which was October 19th. On October 21st, 65-year-old Dorothy Miller was also sent to the boarding house and moved into an upstairs room. Just like tenants before, Miller eventually went missing, and on November 20th, a carpet cleaner was hired to remove a, quote, pile of foul-smelling slime, end quote, from Miller's upstairs room. Even after the disappearance, Dorothea continued to forge and collect Miller's benefit checks, totaling about $11,000.
1: Do you think any of these social workers just, like, not know what was going on? Does not knew that, oh, (coughs) these people are, like, dying, suicide, in quotations?
0: It's kind of iffy because a lot of social workers kept sending their people to Dorothea's because she had such a good reputation leading up to this point. But then you, I, I couldn't really find more information on what those social workers did when these people just disappeared. That's Brenda Trujillo, a former cellmate of Dorothea's, sent a letter to the Sacramento Social Security Office on November 29, 1987, accusing Dorothea of stealing about $3,500 of her own Social Security check. Trujillo had moved into the boarding house after her release from prison and received help from Dorothea with applying for Social Security benefits. She also claimed that she was drugged by Dorothea and had her parole officer called on her, which then caused her parole to be revoked and caused Dorothea to be able to collect the social security checks.
1: Be your own, homies.
0: In February 1988, 52-year-old Bert Montoya was sent to Dorothea's boarding house by his outreach counselor, Judy Moyes. During his stay at the home, he diligently went to his meetings with Moyes and stayed out of trouble. Now, Montoya wasn't Like a lot of the other tenants at the boarding house, a lot of the other tenants had addictions or were transients Mm -hmm. of some way or another. But Montoya was considered a, quote, gentle bear of a man, end quote. And the main reason he was living at the house was because of his untreated psychosis. On March 9th, 1988, 55-year-old Benjamin Fink moved into the boarding house, and his brother came to visit him weekly but by the end of April, he too had disappeared. A tenant reported a disgusting smell coming from Fink's room and was told that the sewer had just backed up by Dorothea. But on April 29th, Dorothea received a delivery of 12 bags of cement, and in June, she had a hole dug in her yard near a metal shed. The area was soon filled with concrete. But back to Bert Montoya. In March, he filed an application to have Dorothea as his benefits payee.
1: Okay, big mistake.
0: By the end of August 1988, Moise had become worried after Montoya missed one of their meetings on the 29th. She called Dorothea, who told her that he had left to visit family in Mexico. But throughout all of their meetings, Moise had never heard of Montoya having any family whatsoever. Moise kept reaching out to Dorothea to find out what she knew about Montoya's disappearance throughout the remainder of September and October. Mm -hmm. And Dorothea went as far as to ask a man working in her yard to call Moise and pretend to be Montoya's brother-in-law and say he had picked him up and moved to Utah. On November 7th, Moise filed a missing persons report for Montoya. On the same day, an officer was soon dispatched to the home, where he talked to Dorothea and some residents. Dorothea was adamant that she had recently seen Montoya, and she even had a tenant named John Sharp agree with her statement, at first at least. Mm-hmm. As the officer was leaving, Sharp slipped him a note that said, quote, she's making me lie for her, end quote
1: your own homies again.
0: Sharp later met up with the police and told them everything he knew about the strange smells in the house, workers digging up holes and filling them with concrete, and that he had not seen Montoya for about three months. On November 11th, detectives John Cabrera and Terry Brown, along with a probation agent named Jim Wilson, knocked on Dorothea's door. They spoke for a while before asking if it would be all right for them to look around and start digging in her yard. Dorothea consented and even offered them a third shovel to search with because they'd only brought two. Mm -hmm. After a few unsuccessful digs, Wilson came across something so hard he thought it must have been a tree root. The three of them kept digging, but when they still couldn't get it out, Cabrera hopped into the hole and began pulling at the root, but it wasn't a root. With a yank of the item, it was discovered that what Cabrera had pulled out was in fact a human leg bone, a femur. Bone? He kept digging and ultimately found a foot still with its shoe on and other pieces of rotten flesh. Dorothea was summoned to the scene, and her response was, quote, I don't know what to tell you, as she held her hands to her face. Cabrera and Dorothea then made their way down to the police station.
1: What now, I say when I say, you know, know what I'm... Once a person has been in prison, the, the police officers, that's...
0: Not so, not yes so. Yes, it is.
1: You know, but I'm saying it's the background. It's the background. It's not like you were in there for something else. What I'm asking for is, nothing makes sense here, Dorothea. Nothing makes sense. Everything you said, you can't really substantiate. Mr. McCauley tells me another thing. Mr. Sharp tells me another thing. And I've got a guy that's been missing for at least two and a half, three months. I don't, I have not. And the social worker that says, I've been working with the guy all the time and he's just up and leaves. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden they didn't want anything to do with him.
0: After the interrogation, Dorothea was allowed to return to her home with a police officer standing outside the entire night. The next day, her yard was flooded with forensics experts and the media. Before Cabrera could even begin to dig that morning, Dorothea went up to him, completely playing up her innocent grandma-esque persona, and asked if it would be okay for her to leave because the scene was too much for her anxiety. Cabrera then escorted her around the corner to a hotel so she could meet her nephew for some coffee. Cabrera walked her and one of her tenants about halfway to the hotel before stopping and letting them continue and he watched them enter the hotel before he turned around to go back to the crime scene. Cabrera remembers that exactly 21 minutes later, he exhumed another body. Another? Officers zoomed over to the hotel, and Dorothea was gone. It was later discovered that she had called a taxi to Stockton, California, and then got on a bus to Los Angeles. She stayed low for three days in her room at the Royal Viking Motel, but on the fourth day, she had gotten a little antsy and decided to go out for a drink. While at a bar, she met a man named Charles Wilgus. Not sure I said that right. But when Wilgus got home that night, he turned on the TV and saw that the woman he had just met at the bar was wanted in Sacramento. Oh, I see. He contacted his local CBS station, which is where he saw the news, and let them know. They sent their one of their lead reporters over, and they talked about it, and then contacted the police. Because he knew where she was staying, because they had made plans to go shopping the next morning. Ah. And he also noted that during their talk at the bar, she asked him some kind of personal questions. Like what? Was he in a relationship? Did he have friends and family? Was he on social security benefits?
1: Hmm.
0: Which I don't know. I feel like that's not something you, you just, just ask. Him. Yeah. A
1: no person at the bar.
0: I don't know. Um, yeah. So, Dorothea was arrested by Los Angeles police the next morning and was flown from the Hollywood Burbank Airport to Sacramento, where Detective Cabrera met her at the runway and formally charged her with the murder of Montoya. Go. At the end of March 1989, Dorothea was charged with an amended complaint of nine counts of murder. Her case qualified for the death penalty. On June 19th, 1990, a judge ruled that there was enough circumstantial evidence to send this case to trial. A month later, Dorothea pleaded not guilty. How? There were a ton of delays in the process, but on October 19, 1992, a judge officially declared that Dorothea would face all nine murder counts. The trial officially started on February 9, 1993, and the trial was huge. There were 156 witnesses who testified, and more than 3,000 exhibits were submitted. And due to all that, there were over 22,000 pages of transcript recorded.
1: 22,000?
0: The jury deliberated for 11 days before coming back on October 2nd, deadlocked.
1: What's deadlock?
0: Deadlock is basically when a jury can't come to a decision.
1: With all that evidence, they couldn't come up with what?
0: The judge gave them further instruction and deliberations resumed the following day. On August 26th, after 35 total days of deliberation, The jury came back with the verdict. Dorothea Puente was convicted on three of the nine counts of murder.
1: They had to be on the payroll.
0: She was convicted for the murders of Benjamin Fink, Leona Carpenter, and Dorothy Miller. The other six cases, Ruth Monroe, Everson Gilmoth, Burt Montoya, James Gallup, Vera Faye Martin, and Betty Mae Palmer, still remain deadlocked. On October 13th, Dorothea was spared the death penalty by yet another deadlocked jury. And on December 10th, she was officially sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. And I think kind of like the Starkweather case we looked into last week, they, I mean, it lo- she was still convicted on those murders. So mm-hmm. although there wasn't closure to, you know, Bill Clawson with his mom's death, mm-hmm. there was at least something to know that she was at least in prison. Yeah. Now, you're still probably wondering how her other victims died, so I didn't really get into that. While almost all of the victims were found on that November day in 1988, some were not identified right away. So Ruth Monroe, who was the first person we talked about, died of a codeine and acetaminophen overdose. She was not buried in the backyard because she had been picked up by the coroner. Yeah. Then Betty Mae Palmer was found dismembered in a shallow hole in Dorothea's front yard
1: dismembered
0: although investigators never found her head hands or feet through toxicology reports it was discovered that she had died with flurazepam doxylamine and haloperidol in her system i mean we all, we know that the flurazepam was most likely dorothea's yeah i don't know about the other ones if they were if they were palmer's and dorothea just gave her extra or How that was. Then there was Leona Carpenter, who was found in the southeastern corner of the yard, and there were traces of codeine, diazepam, and fluorazepam found in her system. Mm. James Gallup's body was found underneath the gazebo on the property, and his brain and liver revealed the presence of amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and fluorazepam. Vera Faye Martin was found under the metal shed, and her toxicology reports also found traces of (laughs) florazepam. Dorothy Miller was found under a slab of concrete in the corner of the yard by some rose bushes. Toxicology samples also found traces of carbamazepine and florazepam. Benjamin Fink was found in the area near the metal shed under the concrete. He was wrapped in a plastic bedspread, duct tape, and blue absorbent pads. Why? He was the one that the tenant said they smelled something weird. Oh, yeah. Um, And the holes weren't dug until at least about a month after the smell started. Mm-hmm. So I think that must have just been trying to keep the smell down. Yeah. His toxicology reports also reported the presence of fluorazepam along with loxapine and amitriptyline. Bert Montoya's body was found near Carpenters in the southeastern corner of the property. His body also contained flurazepam and countless other drugs, although most of them had been prescribed to him, including the But And if you're wondering why I haven't talked about Everson Gilmuth's body yet and the box that was left alongside the river, that's because his body was discovered on January 1st, 1986, but it was not identified until December 28th, 1998. He was wrapped in plastic bags, bedsheets, and electrical tape. It was also discovered that after his death, Dorothea sent letters to his his sister pretending to be him and continued to cash his Social Security benefit checks until July of 1986. Oh, my God. And lastly, you may have noticed that earlier I mentioned Eugene Gamble. He was the tenant who supposedly committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Dorothea was not charged with his murder, but many consider him a possible victim. There was some evidence that he may have been suicidal, so that one is kind of... Iffy. Yeah. In 2009... Dorothea Puente agreed to her first interview since her conviction with Martin Kuz, a journalist for the Sacktown magazine. This interview spanned over about six months, and each time Kuz uncovered new interesting stories that may or may not be true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I definitely recommend this article. I will link it in the show notes, but I just wanted to mention some of the things that really stuck out to me that weren't just the you know, go-through of the whole case. Yeah. So I won't go into all of them, but the first thing that I think is the most ironic is that she told him that her favorite shows to watch while in prison were Criminal Minds, CSI, and Cold Case. She also told him how she was once a part of the Rockettes, but fell into the orchestra pit during a performance and broke her leg, ending her dance career. Mm-hmm. Coos never found evidence to support that claim. She also claimed to have become good friends with at the time, Senator John F. Kennedy, during her Rockettes era. Okay. And Dorothea Puente died in her cell on March 27, 2011, at the age of 82, due to natural causes. And if you're looking for some, you know, ways to see her in the media, there's tons of TV shows and specials about her. There's not a lot of fictional shows, mm-hmm. like we saw with Starkweather. But something I thought was really interesting was, it's actually the first time I think I heard about this case, was my mom and I were watching this random show called Murder House Flip.
1: Interesting.
0: And (laughs) because, oh, I forgot to mention, there are people who live in her house now who claim that the house is innocent. They have a little mannequin on their porch that looks like Dorothea Puente, and they have a QR code that anyone can scan to get more information or to see a documentary about the house but they were featured on murder house flip and they basically just had their house renovated and their mainly their yard renovated um the house is also a historical landmark in sacramento so it can't be torn down
1: that's very odd from sacramento
0: i think that it was mainly because of its age because it was a victorian era home
1: okay
0: but it's still odd (laughs) Yeah, I think that's pretty much all I have. Do you have any questions, Oscar, or any comments on anything?
1: She was born a pathological liar and died a pathological liar.
0: Oh, I forgot to mention this. There was this one quote. So, during her, r- right before her release from prison in 1985, a state psychologist who evaluate, evaluated Dorothea diagnosed her as schizophrenic, saying, quote, This woman is a disturbed woman, who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. She is to be considered dangerous, and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored.
1: And just no one paid attention to that.
0: And the following year, obviously, as like we know, she restarted her boarding house without a license and everything. Mm. And one last thing that I thought was interesting from the Sacktown Magazine article was... When asked about some of the things she misses about her life before prison, her answer to what she misses the most is, quote, going to church every day, cooking what I want, and working in my yard, end quote. What an asshole. So, yeah, she continued for like the rest of her life to claim that she was not guilty. She never gave any suggestions of who might be guilty. She could have easily tried to throw. Any of the people who dug her holes, her tenants, her nephew, even under the bus, and she didn't. If she really didn't do it, I don't see why she wouldn't have tried to come up with who else had done it. Yeah. Because I don't. I. I don't think that she knew nothing. If oh, if yeah. she wasn't involved, if she didn't do it, I. Even though she did, um. I. I don't see why she wouldn't have
1: ratted someone.
0: Yeah. And. There's no way she wouldn't have known what was going on.
1: Yeah. But you know what goes on in that residence. You are the keeper of the house.
0: I think that's it. Any last comments? None. Okay, well, thank you all for listening.
1: Which is gracias.
0: Tune in next week as we cover a state very close to the both of us in Wisconsin.
1: On Wisconsin, on Wisconsin.
0: And Yeah, so thank you so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. Thank you. Bye. Adios. Thank you for listening to Murderous America. Also, a special thank you to World's Most Evil Killers for the Bill Clawson audio clip, and a special thank you to Archive California for the interrogation clip. As always, if there's anything that we got wrong or just more information you want to give us, please feel free to DM us on Instagram at Murderous America.